0: From WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, this is the Magical Mystery Tour.
1: So where to start?
0: This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. My guest is Miles Schertz. Miles, as a student of human history, has been practicing and teaching insight meditation for over 40 years. And today we're going to be talking about the last of his recent booklets titled Human Nature, The Elephant in the Room, as humanity faces catastrophic climate change. So, Miles, welcome back to the Magical Mystery Tour.
1: Thanks, Tony. Oh, I'm glad to be here.
0: So when we speak of human nature as the elephant in the room, what are we talking about, and what does it have to do with climate change and all the other problems we've been creating for ourselves?
1: Yeah, so that's why I wrote this book. You know, as I'm concerned, as I think many of us are, uh, about the planet, about the health of the planet, about the impact that our human industrial societies are having on the planet. Like many people, I'm trying to find the solution, the way out. How? Could, what can we actually do about this that will change it and for the better? And what I've come to the conclusion is that the thing that would ultimately change Things for the better in the long run. The long-term sustainable solution is to change our human nature, to become um, different, better people, you could say. But to alter the way we approach life, the way we, the way humans generally do things, to change our default programming, if you will. And I dedicated myself to that, as you mentioned in the intro, over forty years ago. Um, knowing and experiencing that it's really difficult to do, and yet with the passion that this is the most important thing I could do was to change the way that my mind works, to be able to open my mind to be, for example, more present in the moment rather than lost in chain thinking, thought after thought after thought. So what I realized is that in my work, teaching meditation and guiding people and introducing the concept of personal growth to people over decades now, that many people think it's a good idea. Most of us like the idea of changing ourselves, growing, becoming better people, perhaps um, people that could take better care of the environment and care about the planet. Everyone likes that idea, and what I am slowly coming to realize is that most people don't think it's possible to change human nature. That's why I call it in the uh, subtitle of the book, The Elephant in the Room. So we, those of us that have tried to change our own nature, tried to become, for example, more loving or more generous or more kind or more giving, notice how difficult that is. It's not something that happens easily. And a lot of us get discouraged and feel ultimately that it's not possible that when push comes to shove we always resort to survival instincts and me first and as we know that's what part of what's hurting the planet so badly is that we're we're kind of caught in this framework most of us where we put me first and in so doing we neglect the environment what's what's actually necessary for our survival gets neglected and damaged so instead of Trying to change human nature instead of going to the cause, I think what most of us have done is try to address the symptoms. We try to pass legislation that reduces CO2 emissions or we try to govern how corporations work. And I think those are good strategies. I'm not suggesting that we stop trying to solve the problem of climate change through laws and agreements between nations. I think that's good. But what we realize is that it's not enough, and I think the solution to that is that we need to address our own basic human nature and ask the question, how could we do this? What is it about our nature that would enable us to destroy the environment that we depend on for our own survival? And that's the question I pose in the book, and the question that I explore more deeply is what could we do to change human nature? And I'm trying to present it as something that isn't out of reach. Difficult, yes, but not out of reach. So that's the premise of this particular little booklet, Human Nature.
0: So, again, human nature as the elephant in the room, as something that... I mean, these days, a lot of people are looking at human nature as being self-destructive, out of control essentially a major intractable problem. Yeah. Do you think that's really true about human nature, or is that just one perspective of human nature?
1: Exactly. No, it can't be true. It's not true. And I think that's where we're stuck, you know, in a very simple way of describing it. I think that's where we're stuck, is I think that most people believe that human nature can't be changed, that it is intractable, and so we're trying to change everything else but human nature, and I think that's not going to work. I think that human nature is what we need to change, our own basic programming, and the work of my life has been to show people how, that I'm completely convinced that we can change our human nature and that it's what we're not only can we do it but it's what we're here to do it's what it's what human beings are for it's what this life is for is to understand the limits of the way we're using our mind right now and to see the destructive side effects of how we're using our mind and to change that and that's where it becomes a personal a path of personal growth sometimes I call spiritual growth, the spiritual path, is about becoming aware of what's going on in our own personal mind, our own consciousness, and learning how to relax the mind, open the mind, and let go of thought, and in doing so, access a different capacity, a different capacity than rational thought. I think that's what we need to learn how to do as humans, and in doing that we alter what we call human nature. So the premise of my writing here is that human nature is not an absolute. It's just a starting place. And that we can change human nature, and we must change human nature, and we have to begin with ourselves. You can't change somebody else's human nature. You have to start by changing your own.
0: So we're notorious at um, trying to pin the blame for everything on everybody or everything but ourselves. And it seems like what you're saying or implying at least is that this self-destructive and intractable aspect of human nature is a conception of our mind and that perhaps by just changing our mind or inquiring more deeply into what's arising in our mind, the beliefs that we have in our mind, the programming that we have accepted that circulates endlessly through our mind, that perhaps our human nature is actually something completely different.
1: Yes. That's really what I wanted to highlight in this little booklet, is that what we call human nature this obsession with thinking about myself the obsession with the story of myself the premise that my primary task in life is to develop myself and build this idea of a self that that's not our original human nature and that's where i saw an opening here to try to to try to talk to my fellow humans to say that we are what we call human nature isn't our primary nature. It's something that we learned. And to illustrate this, I found a great resource in the story of Genesis in the Old Testament of the Bible, the story of the Garden of Eden. And it's a beautiful, in my mind, illustration, a beautiful, uh, you could say, myth or story that has a very clear purpose, which is to show us how and when our human nature changed to what we consider human nature now and if you if you remember and i think most of the listeners will have some notion of this because that story is so universal but the basic premise is that the first humans adam and eve lived in a garden on earth and the nature of that garden we call the garden of eden is that everything was provided there was no death there was no sickness there was no pain, and there was nothing to be afraid of, and there were no needs. It was a place where our needs were continuously met by what was available around us, food, shelter, and we were in harmony and connected to everything in the garden. So that's the picture of the Garden of Eden. And then according to the story, God told us, "This is I've made this garden for you, it's for your pleasure, it's for your... Sustenance, um, you can enjoy it, do whatever you want. You'll live forever in this garden. You know, I'll, I'll look after you. The one thing you can't do is eat the fruit of that tree over there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there was a condition put, asked of us not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The implication is that we didn't know the difference between good and evil. We didn't need to know the difference. There was no difference. In the Garden of Eden, our world was not divided into things we considered good and things we considered bad. That basic dualistic reference points of good and evil didn't exist, and we didn't need them. Then, according to the story, we ate the fruit. And it doesn't matter to me how that happened. I think a lot of emphasis gets put on the serpent and Eve and the apple and... Uh, To me, that's all just peripheral. The crux of the story, the most important part, is that we did eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and once we ate of that fruit, our minds changed. Instead of being connected to everything around us with nothing to fear, we now started to sort everything into what's good and what's bad, what's good and what's evil. And it fundamentally changed our nature into what we now call human nature. And as we know from the story, once we ate of the fruit, God said, okay, now you have to leave the Garden of Eden. And now you will know death. You will no longer be eternal. Uh, You'll have a lifespan. You'll know suffering. You'll know pain. You'll know death. And you'll know fear. And you'll have to protect yourselves. And Whereas before, we didn't have to do any of that. So... To me, it's a very, very clear, simplistic, metaphorical story that describes how our human nature changed, and the crux of it is that we went from not needing to know and not having the capacity to know the difference between good and evil, to suddenly that that premise, that there's good and there's evil and we have to know the difference, became the central theme of our lives and if you if you look at your mind and look at how your mind works you'll see that it's constantly making that evaluation is this good is this bad is this right is this wrong is this is this safe or is this not safe and when our minds constantly occupied in that our energy gets drained we get caught up in in a paradigm of fear and anxiety and insecurity and everything we try to do to solve that just makes the problem worse
0: so, by eating the fruit of the tree of good and evil, it radically changed our perspective of things.
1: Yes. Nothing physically changed in the garden. Our perception of it changed. That's key to this.
0: Mm-hmm. And this perceptual change was so radical. And, you know, I just, I very recently had a conversation about this with somebody, and I remember at the beginning where God saying, "You have the fruit of all these trees that you can eat and they will sustain you forever, but do not eat of the tree of good and evil, for if you do, you will surely die yeah. and it's a fascinating metaphor for the introduction of the consequences of duality and judgment and the intellectual capacity for discernment yeah and you know it's kind of a devil's bargain that god makes with us and and using the term god even is is a metaphorical thing in itself sure. but it's like the notion that we committed a sin or did something wrong by eating of the fruit of the tree of good and evil, I think is, is a great misunderstanding of all of this, that it mm. was inevitable that we would do that, and it was only by warning us not to do it that we were, in a way, being in, ensured that we would actually do that. <laughs> yeah, because sure. otherwise, we might just blindly stumble around in the Garden of Eden, you know, complacent for eternity... <laughs> because and you know never, human never beings found... right and never you know never discovered the joys of of suffering and and misery and pain and and all that other yeah. stuff but yeah. but there's a, a much bigger thing to all of this and that is that we have the opportunity and i think it's it's our purpose in life is to bring this full circle yeah to begin as the metaphorical fool in the tarot who doesn't know anything, doesn't know any better, and yeah. is totally naive to go through all of the, you know, the, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune of life, and then come to a much broader inclusive and empathetic understanding of the nature of life and duality and pain and suffering and joy and, and, and everything that is part of the human experience and then we in a sense complete or fulfill our human nature
1: yeah yeah i like i like dissecting that story i love hearing different ways of looking at that story and i just think it's stunning when you look at that story to realize what it's actually telling us it would somehow when i was a child in sunday school and i heard that story in church the emphasis was always on the serpent somehow beguiling the humans or eve is often how it's told and then convincing eve to eat the apple and then give it to adam and then that concept of the the original sin that we blew it we we disobeyed god and now we're we we're paying for it the emphasis was always on that and as I said earlier, I think that's just peripheral, that's just...
0: Or a misunderstanding, a misreading. A misunderstanding.
1: It's a misreading There will be a misunderstanding, but the thing that gets my attention is, wait a minute, before we ate of that fruit, we didn't know good and evil. We, our mind didn't work that way. And not only that, it didn't need to work that way. We were content, we were fulfilled we had everything we needed and imagine a world imagine this world with nothing to fear when people ask what am i talking about when i say changing human nature or healing the mind or becoming a better person fulfilling your human potential one way to describe that is what would it be like to live without fear without being afraid and for most of us that's inconceivable We have not had that experience. It's very rare for a human being to have even a moment without some level of fear. And yet what we were told in that biblical story is that that's how we started. We started without fear, with no need to be cautious or afraid, or nothing to protect ourselves from. And then we ate the fruit, and it's not that the garden changed. I think this is really key. It's not that suddenly now there were, there were vicious things in the garden. It's that now we perceive that there were vicious things. Now that we perceive that there was good things and bad things. And I think it's the best sense I can make out of that is, to me, it's not so important how that came about. Why it was set up that way. and What was that tree doing in the Garden of Eden anyway? And why did God caution us? knowing full well that then we would go and eat from the fruit. That, to me, is not the point. I think we could spend a lot of energy trying to figure out how did this happen, why did this happen. And I think the 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 value, the important thing, is to just realize that it did happen, and maybe we don't know why, and maybe, as you say, it's so that we could experience the whole breadth of possibility. And what I'm recognizing in my own life and what my teachers like like the buddha have emphasized to me is that it's not so important how we got here the question is what do we do now Mm -hmm. and clearly our mind is programmed or oriented for self-destruction that's the that's the very clear and almost impossible message of climate change is that we have this tendency for self-destructive behavior and in the book i like to break it down a little bit more personally each one of us if we look at our own lives and are honest with ourselves can see that we often do things that we know are not good for us we eat too much or we eat too much sugar or we smoke or we drink or we don't exercise we all do things or don't do things that we know are not healthy and good for us that that don't make us feel good and to a large degree we we can't stop doing them. We don't have that level of self-control. Some of us have more than others, and some of us have certainly done better at that. But the point is that we all have these weaknesses. We all have these shadows or these fragile sides of our nature that it seems like our mind just does what it wants and makes us do things that we don't necessarily choose to do or consciously choose to do. And the point of climate change, to me, the very clear message in it is if we don't change our fundamental human nature, we will destroy the only home we know, the only, the only planet that we are aware of that has the capacity to sustain life as we know it. And what a horrible tragedy that would be. So I think the, the answer is to go back to where, how did we get off on this track of self-destructive thinking, and I think the story of Eden is a really good illustration of where it started, and in that story contains the solution, which is equally impossible to conceive of, which is to let go, to voluntarily relinquish our mental capacity to discern good from evil. To The way I like to say it is, instead of emphasizing and focusing on our rational capacity for evaluation, or discernment as you say instead of making that the the ultimate way to use our mind i've discovered through meditation that my mind can rest in awareness or presence which is a form of consciousness that doesn't require evaluation i don't have to know if something is good or bad i don't have to evaluate it i don't even have to know what it is all i have to do is be with it and feel my inherent connection with it and that's what presence or awareness does and we have that capacity and so i take that story of the garden of eden as a as a mandate as an instruction to us let go give up give up the mind's capacity for discernment and see what happens think of it as an experiment
0: well when you say give up that capacity for discernment and and judgment you don't mean to attempt to like lobotomize ourselves? Do you?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't mean that. Um, but that's an, a good question. That's an obvious question because think about it. I mean, Just I, even and I question,
0: mean it metaphorically.
1: You, you don't mean physically. But think think about that. Is the question that I get asked most most often? It's the it's the alarm bell that goes off. Are you suggesting that I give up my capacity for rational thought? And let's take a moment and look at that. Why is that such an outrageous or difficult suggestion or, or blasphemous, really? You know, we, we a lot of us like to think that we can make fun of anything or we can question anything, but suddenly I question what's the value in rational thought, and very few people consider that a good question. Most of us get alarmed because we've made... Our capacity for rational thought paramount, mm-hmm. and what 's beautiful to me about the story of the Garden of Eden is it simply says no, it's not paramount. There was a time and a beautiful time, a time that I think most of us would like to return to. I think most people when they hear the story of the Garden of Eden think that's a good place i'd like to get back to, i'd like to go there. <laughs> so there was a time when we didn't have the capacity for discernment and we didn't need it So, my suggestion that we let it go may sound to us like giving up the only thing we have that defines us as humans or the most powerful thing we have our capacity to tell right from wrong and yet we don't need that capacity and we have that proof in the story of eden and i can tell you it's true from my own spiritual practice that When I get to a place in my meditation where I'm not thinking at all, and that does happen, that can happen, and I'm really resting in present moment awareness, I don't have a notion and I don't have a need to discern what's good and what's bad. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to evaluate it. I can be what we're now calling in the flow. And when I'm in the flow, in presence, without thought, I feel good. I feel happy. I feel safe, and I don't feel afraid. But there are and so I know I know that's possible for us.
0: But there are some uses for rational thinking at times. Do you think that we have to completely give it up?
1: No. No, it's like it's like becoming a citizen, it's like getting a Canadian passport and becoming a Canadian citizen. Actually, I'm not sure if that works that way, but I <laughs> I know from first-hand experience that if Canadians emigrate to the U.S. and get a U.S. passport, they can still keep their Canadian passport. And learning how to access a different capacity of of your mind, the capacity I would call awareness or consciousness itself, just raw consciousness without the overlay of thought, learning how to access that, learning how to rest in that and to live in that place, doesn't mean that you can't think. We don't have to give up our capacity for rational thought. In fact, what I've found is that my capacity for rational thought becomes clearer because it's not so crowded. It's like, it's like when your computer, when you store too much stuff on the memory of your computer, it slows down your computer. Your computer gets slower and slower and more and more sluggish because it's bogged down with all this information. And that's what happens to our rational mind, is that we're using it so exclusively we depend on it so continuously that we clog it up. You know, look at, look at your mind. Any, anybody listening to this, just, just be honest with yourself. And however you do it, I do it in meditation. You can do it in your own way. But however you do it, become aware of what's actually going on in your rational mind, and you'll see it's just full all the time. It's ne- there's never a moment where it's quiet and restful and empty. And in that over fullness, that crowdedness of our mind, which I think is what's driving us crazy, we, don't, we can't think as clearly. So we're actually disabling our rational thought capacity. We're disabling it. We're limiting it by overcrowding it, like trying to do everything on our computer until it gets so jammed with information that it doesn't work well anymore. And what I'm simply talking about is accessing a different capacity, the capacity for awareness where we let go of thought we don't need to think in this moment there's nothing i need to figure out or decide or decipher or interpret and those moments are critical to our well-being and i believe critical to the well-being of the planet and then the more we learn how to use our mind in that way that organic what i call the original mind the original mind that was described in the garden of eden the more we learn to use our mind in that way the better our capacity for rational thought will get because we'll use it only when we need it.
0: And also, neuroscience has found that the brain utilizes about 80% of the energy in the body in its thinking processes. So when we're constantly engaged in thinking, we're consuming the overwhelming majority of our energy, which, if it wasn't, being used in these compulsive and mostly redundant ways, we would have so much energy available for, for real creative things, including yes. problem solving.
1: Yes, it's, it's absolutely true. Um, and I like that, that number. I haven't heard that statistic, but it makes total sense to me by using our mind as a primarily a thinking tool we burn up a lot of energy it it consumes the oxygen in the room as it were and it's all in service to to ego it's just trying to re, you know keep the story of me going so that my ego can have some identity can have some sense of who i am and that's what your mind is doing and it's really important to not believe any of this but to look For yourself for each one of us to look into our own mind and notice what your mind is up to really honestly take a look at it and if you if you think that your mind is always brilliant and coming up with brilliant ideas and solutions sometimes it is for sure but most of the time as you suggest it's just going in circles and they're they're very fickle and and trivial and arbitrary we go over and over the past. Watch your mind do this. You go over and over the past trying to figure out what something meant, and we obsess over it, and we never get clear on what it meant. And we plan the future endlessly, rehearsing. What am I going to say here? What's this going to be like? How am I going to handle myself in this situation? We rehearse and try to plan the future, and our mind won't stop doing it. It'll come up with endless scenarios to be concerned about and all that's consuming our vital energy and it's unnecessary and if we if we learn how to unhook from that and that's simply what meditation is really the 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 simplest way i could describe meditation practice is it's just learning to unplug from the thinking mind it's like turning off your computer or turning off your cell phone it's that spaciousness that happens when you when you turn off your device And our mind is much like those devices. We use our thinking mind very similarly to the way we use a computer or a cell phone today. We're always referring to it. We're always paying attention to it. It's consuming a lot of our energy. And the art of meditation, the practice of meditation, is simply learning where the off button is, simply learning how to, and having the will to do it. It's learning it is easy. It's having the will to just say, I'm going to rest my mind now. I'm going to be here in present moment. I'm not going to worry about the future. I'm not going to try to figure out what the past meant. And the more we practice that, the more energy we get. And then it's when you meditate and you, you get this rush of energy. I've done, you know, many long meditations. Some The typical length of meditation in my tradition, the Buddhist insight meditation tradition, is a 10-day, 7- or 10-day retreat. And you can get very quiet and very deep in that amount of time and you feel enormous energy. You feel like you could climb mountains. And it's because that energy isn't getting burned up in, in random thinking, in, in chronic, random you know, thought loops that go over and over and over. When you stop that, when you unhook from that, you get energy back.
0: So our culture is is rife with things like anxiety and fear and worry how easy or how difficult is it to go back to to assent like let's say putting our mind on pause instead of saying off which could sound very threatening to sure to a lot of people out there who who really thrive on on their thinking process and perhaps value their intellectual thinking mind as being paramount but perhaps could be more gradually introduced to the notion of of just putting that part of ourselves on pause on occasion you know doing it deliberately in a way to further the experiment the exploration of of who we of who and what we are, you know, and how our mind works, and what is possible yeah. when we're not just engaged in thinking. Because one of the limitations of thinking, as interesting and fun as it can be at times, it's always at least somewhat removed from the direct experience of yeah. reality. Yeah. And I think that should give people at least a little bit of pause, because, you know, what is life all about? Is it about thinking? Is it about figuring everything out and having some great intellectual capacity? Or is it about direct experience?
1: Yeah. And great question. And and uh, one way to, to really dig into that a little bit is when you describe, and it, again, I really urge people listening to this to look for themselves. Don't just believe this or not believe this. But when you describe the way that when we're consumed with thought, we're not able to experience what's happening in the moment. And that's what got me into meditation, was I was a young man in college and I saw how my mind was consumed with thought. And I saw how blocked me from present moment. I couldn't enjoy the things that were right in front of me. Uh, I was worried about losing them. I was thinking about what would happen next. I was consumed with trying to give meaning to my past, and I couldn't enjoy what I had, and that was really an awakening moment for me. It really got my attention. I was really concerned about that and realized I want to do something about this, and that's what led me to learn the practice of meditation was the was the realization that when i was so consumed with thought which i was most of the time back then i was i was missing my life i was missing my present moment experience and what's really fascinating to me about technology especially computers is that we have the language now to describe that in technology terms so think about how when you're on your cell phone and and look around you and see how many people are walking down the street or sitting or driving with their eyes and attention glued to their cell phones it's it's just a really pervasive dynamic now and as people are looking at their cell phones they're not noticing what's going on around them they're not seeing the landscape they're not being with the people that they're with so so we can see very tangibly how being consumed by a device like a like a cell phone or a computer takes us away from our actual experience. And and we have a word for it. We call it virtual. And the argument a lot of people give for getting off of our devices is we're living more and more in a virtual world created by our devices, by our cell phones and our computers, because they're so complex. There's so many rabbit holes we can explore and get sucked into. So what I love about that is it's very much the same with our own minds. I think of my mind now just like I think of a computer or cell phone. I think of it as a fantastic tool, beautiful tool, elaborate, elegant, sophisticated tool, and I use it as a tool. I pick it up when I need it, I use it when I need it, and then I put it down again. I'm not always good about that, but I recognize the need to be very clear about that. What am I on my computer for now? What am I looking at my cell phone for now? What am I needing to think about now? And if there isn't a good need, if there isn't a good reason, I let it go. And then what I do is come back to what's happening around me. What, what are my senses picking up? Is the, what's the wind feel like? What does the scenery look like? Who am I with right now? What's their energy feel like? So I, I reduce my thinking time and increase my present moment experience time and What's happened for me is I'm no longer living in a virtual world created by my thoughts. And I realized that before I was. My mind was creating a whole virtual world, a reality, if you will, based on my conclusions, my judgments, not based on my direct experience. And the practice of meditation is set up, it's designed to interrupt that. It's designed to help us come back to the actual experience and step out of the virtual reality that our thinking mind creates.
0: And another thing that occurred to me while reading this booklet, Human Nature, is how—and this is happening really powerfully these days, especially, and seeming to get worse and worse—and that is when we value our ideas of right and wrong, whether political, social, or moral values, over the value of another human being— I think we've gone off the rails and lost our basic sanity. Yeah. And I think these days, most of us have kind of lost our sanity in that way.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to say it, and that's a, a really good contrast to point out that we can do that, and many of us are doing it, that we're valuing our own our own beliefs, our own ideas of what's right and what's wrong more than we value other people and that allows us to treat other people who have different values as if they're not human we can we can do harm to them either in our thoughts our words or actions we can be violent against them
0: and usually they it cr- it forms a chain you start by thinking that way and mm-hmm. then you start speaking that way and then yep. you become vulnerable to behaving that way
1: yes yeah so I always like to bring attention to how our values can separate us and how we can judge each other and, and treat each other badly as humans based on people that don't agree with us or don't seem to share the same values or the same customs or the same culture. So we've tried to resolve that. I would say in you know the liberal department of humanity, we tried to resolve that by legislating against that limiting our capacity for prejudice, for racism, for sexism, for those kinds of prejudices. We try, to, we try to come at it from a moral standpoint and say, that's wrong, it's not right, we shouldn't do that, we're going we're gonna to make laws against it. And that's a strategy, and it could be a useful strategy, but it doesn't ever seem to really get at the cause. And I think it's really important that we notice that one of the effects Of that behavior of judging other people negatively because they don't share our values I'm right you're wrong is what that ends up looking like and we're doing that as you say in our world now more and more it appears that pattern has gotten stronger much stronger to the point where it's really threatening our all of our stability and security of of nations and cultures but to give that up is not just to be a better person. It's because when we judge someone else negatively, when we hate someone because of their beliefs or their values or because they're different from us, when we feel threatened by them because they're different from us and we cut ourselves off from them and make them the enemy, they're wrong, I'm right, we're right, they're wrong, when we do that, we reduce our world, we isolate ourselves, we make our world less safe. We make our world smaller, and we're more afraid. So the reason to give that up, the reason to burrow down into that and find the cause and undo it, to release the mind that that divides everything into right and wrong and good and bad, the reason to do it is not to be a good person or legally, politically correct. It's because it is what finally makes us happy and gives us security. When we finally feel connected to everything around us, We could notice the differences, but they're not threatening to us. Then we feel secure. We feel happy. We feel part of something that's much larger than us. And when we divide our world into us and them, we feel small, insecure, afraid. It makes our world less safe. And this is exactly the point of the story of the Garden of Eden, in my mind. In the Garden of Eden, we felt connected to everything. There was nothing we needed to judge as wrong. There was no... No animal or creature or other person there who was less than us or worse than us because they had a different idea about something. We didn't do that in the Garden of Eden. Our minds didn't need to do it. And if we understand the story, the way it's being told, I think it implies we didn't have the capacity. And the result of that in the Garden of Eden is that it was beautiful, and it was abundant and luscious, and we were connected to all of it. Our world was whole and we were part of this much bigger world. And then when we learned, ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when we conditioned our mind, programmed our mind by eating that fruit to then begin to discern this is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong, this is me, this is you. When we started making those divisions, and you'll remember from the story, one of the things Adam and Eve did then was, and had to do, was go around and name everything in the garden. Before that, they didn't need to do that because everything was part of one whole. So when we divide the world into into good and bad, like we're doing more and more today, we fragment Eden. We make it so that that state of Eden, that state of, of not being threatened by anything, total security, total security is being connected to the larger world, not fragmented. And we're going in a direction that will not, get our need for security met. We all have a need for security, no doubt. And I think the mistake that many of us are making is thinking that we can only be secure by identifying who the bad people are and then attacking them or containing them or separating ourselves from them. That's the only way we can be secure. And in fact, that approach makes our world less secure.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. So as you were talking about how that type of thinking and behavior makes our world smaller and even less secure. Most of us, you know, we feel totally stuck in that thought constructed world mm. with no sense of any way out. Yeah. And especially because we can't think our way out of a thought constructed world. <laughs> right.
1: Right? That's exactly right
0: but we endlessly try to do that we we think up legislation or we think up schemes of ways to control other people or to exact revenge on others or to try to eliminate the symptoms we you know we don't we don't take responsibility for our own actions and our own thinking and you know we haven't been successful at controlling our own behavior so therefore i think by Almost by default, we project it outward and, and assume, well, I haven't gotten anywhere with myself. Maybe I can, I can control the world around me.
1: Yes, that's beautiful. So I, I want to highlight two things you just said. One is that we can't think our way out of this, which is really important to point out. And we haven't been successful at changing ourselves, so we try to change other people. Those are two really good insights to pay attention to. We can't think our way out of it because the problem is thinking. The problem is our reliance on thought, exclusive reliance on thought. But that's what makes this so difficult. It's not complicated. It's just really difficult to find a way out because the only way we know to do anything is through thought, to think about it, to problem solved using our rational brain. And this problem can't be solved that way because the overuse of our rational mind is what the problem is. So that's the difficult part of practicing something like meditation or to go back to the theme of this discussion, changing human nature. The difficult, seemingly impossible part is I can't think my way out of this. It's not working. And that's true and it's very frustrating for many of us because we try really hard to be different or to change things and nothing changes the simple truth is it can't change because we're using the paradigm that caused the problem so the only way we can step out of this paradigm is to literally step out of the paradigm to to approach this from a very different place and that place fortunately is being offered to us it's being described in these ancient teachings like the teachings of the buddha a place of pure awareness a place of presence where thought recedes we can still think if we want to but we're not consumed by it we're not we're not addicted to it anymore the thought the habit of thought recedes and what's left is a simple mind that's open and present to present moment experience and it's only then that we can see a way out it's only then that we can start to undo the prison the trap that we feel like we're in And because that's so difficult because it defies any logic and most of us have been so frustrated trying it and found it not to work yeah then it would be obvious that we would try to change other people because we're not having any luck changing ourselves so we go about blaming others and trying to make them change and the, the simple truth of that is that we, most of us know by now that does not work. People don't change like that. And we're, we find ourselves beating ourselves against our head against the wall, trying to change other people, trying to get them to change, and never really getting anywhere. So the, the, the promise of this thing I'm calling spiritual practice, of personal growth or self-awareness practice, The promise is that change is possible, fundamental change. We can change our human nature. I believe we can only do it from inside of ourselves. So we can't change somebody else's human nature, but we can change our own. And the question then comes up, well, what's the point of that? If I just change myself, but everybody else is still damaging the earth, then the earth will still be destroyed. But we're missing the point there, because if we change our own nature, what we're doing is breaking the paradigm. We're opening up a new paradigm, and the power of that is immense. That's why we need teachers like Buddha who have shown us that there's a different paradigm, there's a whole different approach. So when any one of us breaks out of that old paradigm and enters the new paradigm, we are creating an opening for all the rest of humanity to follow. So it's a very powerful act, and it will work much better than trying to get other people to change and or trying to think our way out of it.
0: So you tell an interesting version of the genie story, which I would love for you to share. (laughs) Yes.
1: So picture yourself walking on one of our beautiful trails in the Green Mountains here in Vermont, and suddenly up ahead, half buried in the ground, you see this shiny object and, of course, curiosity draws you over to it and you look at it and it looks like a some sort of an antique vessel and you start digging around and lo and behold, out of the earth, you pull this old oil lamp, you know, an antique lamp that they used for lighting their houses back in the day of, of oil before we had electricity. And you start cleaning it up because it's all dirty and then, much to your amazement, a huge puff of smoke comes out of the oil lamp and then there appears the genie, and says, okay, you get a wish, what would you like? And you think about it, and you think, ah, the Earth is coming to an end. We're clearly not getting this right. We're going to destroy the Earth, and I I need a whole other planet to live on. That's the solution. So I say to the genie, I'd like you to build me a house on Mars that I can live in and bring me and my family there so we can live there safely on Mars while the Earth gets destroyed by humans. And the genie scratches his head and furls his brow and thinks about it for a moment. And then he looks at me and he says, I can't do that. That's craziness. That's, that's way beyond my capacity. And he says, no, no, I can't do that. Make, make another wish. Give me something else to do. And so I think about it some more and I think, well, all right, he can't build me a house on Mars. What else would solve the problem? So I say to the genie, okay. I'd like you to change human nature So we're not self-destructive And the genie Thinks about it And very calmly Looks at me and says When would you like me to start Building that house on Mars The implication (laughs) of that story Of course The moral of that story Is that most of us believe That changing our human nature Is not possible And what gave me the idea to come up with that version of that story there's many versions of that story i think some of the listeners will have heard other versions of it but what gave me the inspiration to come up with that version is that in fact people humans are exploring a habitable environment on mars in the event that the earth becomes uninhabitable and when i hear that i just think how insane how completely insane that we would be so convinced that we can't change our human nature. In other words, we're so convinced that our nature is destructive, there's nothing we can do about it, we're going to destroy the Earth, that we would invest ourselves in trying to make a planet like Mars, which, as far as we could tell, completely hostile to any life form that we know, to make a planet like that habitable shows us how blind we are it just shows us how much we've assumed that we can't change our human nature and so we've given up trying and what i find important to say as often as i can is that we have to change our human nature and it has to be possible and i think what we're doing to the planet is just a warning it's just a signal to us it's motivating us To really burrow into our own human nature and find out why we act in ways that are not in our own best interest. Why do I do things that hurt me? Why do we as a people do things that hurt each other and hurt ourselves and hurt the planet? I think we need to answer that question, and I think there's a way to answer that question. And when we find the cause, when we discover what's at the bottom of it, we will find a way out.
0: And there's... Another interesting thing to that story, and that is that, in fact, we cannot change human nature from the outside. Mm. We can only do it from the inside, which of course means that we have to do it within ourselves.
1: Yes, beautiful. The The genie can't wave a magic wand and change human nature. That's really good. Because I think that's what we're all hoping for. We're all thinking that some guru... When I was younger, I used to think, when I got onto a spiritual path and I was in India, and I thought, oh, there's a guru out there, there has to be someone... Or the second coming
0: of Jesus will save us. The second
1: coming of Jesus, that the the guru, the Savior, the Messiah will come and wave a magic wand and magically transform us and change our human nature. And as you...
0: Or save the world
1: save the yeah, world. Yeah. And I think it's really important to, for us to recognize that that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. And it's, the, it's an inside job. And I think that's why it's appeared to be so difficult for us, because most of us don't get that yet, that we have to do it ourselves from the inside out. Right. The um, positive part of this, <laughs> um, there's a way that this can sound impossible or discouraging, you know, you mean nobody else can do this for me, there's nothing out there that will save me, there isn't a genie who can, or a guru, or a politician, or whatever, who can wave a magic wand, the second coming isn't going to save us, that can look at face value like a very depressing, discouraging, sort of glass half-empty perspective, but the beauty that I find in that and, and the the way that I like to present that is that it's actually totally empowering because it means we each have the capacity within ourselves to change what's happening, to change our own mind. We have the capacity to change our human nature.
0: It's in our hands, literally. It's
1: in our hands. Yeah. It's in our hands, and so we have the power to do it. That's what's so beautiful about this approach is that nobody else has the power. We have the power.
0: But the big but is that we've been so conditioned to disempower ourselves that we don't think that our power amounts to anything in the scope of the entire world.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we sort of feel hopeless and we've given up. A lot of us have given up. And that's what Really motivated me to write this little booklet was realizing that most of us think we can't change our human nature, and so we either become cynical, which can lead to depression. We become cynical. We become depressed. Um, we become angry. Uh, we we see ourselves as the victim because we don't feel powerful, and then we blame whatever we think does have power. We tend to blame and you know think about how we do that it starts with the people around you you think your spouse has the power over you or your parents have the power over you or your school or your employer or your government has the power over you or there's you know this plethora of conspiracy theories in which we think some secret organization has the power over us but we come up with infinite ways and stories that put the power in somebody else's hands and make us into a victim and that's how the ego tries to empower itself the ego the ego claims righteousness and nobility by being the victim <laughs> and it's a terrible terrible paradigm destructive and dysfunctional paradigm because if we're in that place we don't ha- we don't see ourselves as powerful and we won't we won't even begin to take the steps that we could take to change our fundamental human nature and so my writing of this book and the teaching i'm trying to get out there is that it's only in your hands and it's always ever has been this is where i like to refer to the scene from toward the end of the wizard of oz where dorothy if you'll remember many of the listeners hopefully know the, the the classic film wizard of oz and you'll remember that her one desire her strongest desire is to get back home and the wizard has promised to take her in his balloon and she's feeling very hopeful and finally has a way to get back home and then through a series of unfortunate events, Toto the dog jumps out of the balloon and she goes after Toto and the balloon takes off without her and her hopes are crushed. Just like, just like happens to us here. You know, we, we think this is going to save me, this person or this relationship or this job or this particular thing is going to be my way out, my savior. And then somehow it doesn't work out that way and it fails us and we're crushed. And, I think that film just showed it so beautifully. You see the young Dorothy, and her heart just collapses when she sees the wizard take off in the balloon, and we think that it's all over and all hope is lost, and then out of the blue comes the good witch from the story, the the angelic guiding angel witch, and she says to Dorothy, no, you've had the power all along to go home, and it's in those ruby slippers, and you click your slippers heals three times and say, there's no place like home, there's no place like home, and you will go home. And you've had the power with you all along. And it's such a beautiful metaphor that we have this capacity to awaken ourselves. We have this capacity to resolve our, our dysfunctional, self-destructive human nature. We have the ability to go back to Eden right now. It's not something we need to, you know, build for and plan for and create it's a mindset, it's a state of mind, and we have the capacity to to let go of our thoughts and find a still point in our own consciousness where it's all okay, where there's no fear. We have that capacity now, we just don't know it. So that should be the positive, the good news.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, your retelling the end of that story brought me to tears because it's such a powerful And simple metaphor for yeah for the truth of our our real power and what we've always been and we've always had
1: yeah yeah and somehow I love that story because it's true for most of us that we have the power but we don't realize it and what I love about the Wizard of Oz story is that she had the power Dorothy had the power but she didn't realize it and that's really our situation It's not like we did something wrong. It's not like we're stupid. It's just that we haven't quite realized yet that we have the capacity to fundamentally change our human nature and we've had it all along, that nobody else ever had that power over us.
0: And ignorance is not a fatal flaw. No. It's actually something that can help motivate us along the path.
1: Yes. Yeah, when Buddha talked a lot about us being ignorant, he wasn't saying that we were bad (laughs) or wrong. He was saying, we're just not aware. We're
0: kind of like children.
1: We're like children. Yeah, Buddha had this beautiful um, metaphor. He said, you're like children playing with your toys in a room in a house that's on fire. And he was just simply trying to tell us that we're not doing anything wrong and... It would be good to pay attention. <laughs> it would be good. It would be good to look around. It would be good to see what's actually happening cuz once we know that the house is on fire, we can save ourselves. But if we don't notice that the house is on fire, if we don't notice that the climate is changing on earth, if we don't recognize that our house is on fire, there's nothing we won't be motivated to get out. But if we notice it, we can be motivated to get out, and Buddha had a beautiful, offered us a beautiful way to do that, which is to go into our own mind and see the cause, see the cause of the destructive mindset, the self-destructive mindset, see the cause of it in our own thinking, and simply undo it, unhook from it. That's what he meant by freeing ourselves, liberating ourselves, liberating ourselves from that mind that just thinks and thinks and thinks and tries to think its way out. We all need to recognize at some point, and I think most of us do recognize whether we can admit it or not, that thinking our way out is not working. And it's more than not working, it's tying us up in knots. It's making our lives really stressful and complicated, and it's not working. So I think that when you when we realize that, the power of meditation is really that you get to see how your mind is going in circles. And when you're not paying attention, it looks like your mind has a linear direction. It has a plan. You're going to solve this. You're going to figure it out. But when you start paying attention, as happens in meditation, and really watch your mind over time, you'll see that it always comes back to the same place and then starts over again. It's just going in a circle. And it's not getting you out. It's just keeping you stuck. And that's why we feel depressed. We feel constricted. You know, we think something is controlling us and oppressing us because everything just seems to repeat itself in our lives. And we don't seem to be able to get out of that stuck place. It's, I think of it like an eddy in a river. And the first step to get out is to realize that we're stuck, to realize that our mind isn't taking us out. It's just leading us in circles.
0: Mm-hmm. So really all we have to do is get out the remote and hit the pause button.
1: (laughs) Yeah, get out the remote and hit the pause button. You know, it's not that different than deciding that you're done with this particular cell phone session or this particular computer session. That's how I think of it now. I'll sit down at my desk. I don't use cell phones as much as I do computers, but it's the same for most people. But you sit down at your desk or open up your cell phone be conscious of what you're doing and why. And I'll sit down at my desk so I can write Tony o an email about tomorrow's radio interview. And then I'll answer a few other emails. And then I'll say, okay, that's what I came here to do. Now I'm going to stop. And I turn off the computer, I turn off the cell phone, and I get up and go do something else. That's really what we're talking about, is being able to do that with your thinking mind. And... If you're following that imagery, most of us can relate to It's hard to do that with our computer. It's hard to do that with our cell phone. But those of us that are learning how to manage these technologies are realizing it's vital. If I don't get up and walk away from my computer, I could end up spending hours and not even realize it. And I don't get anything done, and I miss what's going on in the rest of my world. And if I get staring at my cell phone, I could do that for hours as well. So we learn through our technology that we have to put the pause button. We have to get up and walk away from them. And it doesn't mean that they're bad, and it doesn't mean that we can't come back to them. It just means that we have to learn to use them and then to stop using them. And it's the same way with our thinking mind, except for that that addiction, that compulsion, is so much more ingrained because it happens when we're very young. We get caught up in our thinking mind, and then we get kind of addicted to it and then we don't even realize that we're doing it so that's what a big part of meditation is is to just simply take a moment and stop and sit and follow your breath put your awareness on something physical sensation this moment like the body breathing and in doing so you get some perspective on your thinking mind you realize that your thinking mind is consuming you because you can finally see it it's like before i go to meditate I might not notice the clock ticking in my room, but as soon as I sit quietly, the first thing I notice is the loud clock ticking, which I didn't even notice before. So when we sit quietly in meditation, you notice your mind. You notice how busy your mind is and how overwhelmed it is and how heavy it feels and how much energy it's using. You feel exhausted. And... That can be the motivation to unhook from that mind, to learn how to get up and walk away, metaphorically speaking, from your mind. You can't physically do that the way you can with a computer or a cell phone. You can't just put your mind away. That's why the art of meditation is so important, because what it's teaching us to do is to put our attention on something that isn't thought. That's all meditation is, is learning to put your attention on something that isn't a conceptual thought. And at first, I tell a lot of my students, just see if you can tell the difference. Just see if you can tell the difference between thinking about something and experiencing something directly. You could say thinking and sensory experience. So right now I'm sitting in my room, and it's a little... It's a little chilly. It's kind of a gray day, and I've got a fire downstairs, but it's still a little chilly here. So I could think about that. I could think, oh, this is a gray, gloomy, chilly day. Or I can feel how my body feels a little cold, and that's a very different experience. And the feeling is where the real life happens. It's in in the moment-to-moment sensations. That's what life is. And when we're consumed in thought, as we spoke about earlier, we miss it. <laughs> and most of us, a lot of us, can go through our whole lives like that, missing the direct experience and then wondering why we're not happy, wondering what what's missing from our life, when what's actually missing is, is simply this moment experience now because I can't feel it, I'm thinking about it, I'm not experiencing it.
0: Yep, and that's that's what your work is you've written a n- number of books beginning with beyond perception which really talks a lot about all of that and the practice of going beyond all of that yeah and you've written a number of booklets in the last several months which we have been talking about on the last three or four shows and it's been so illuminating and it's, it's really quite simple. Really? It's just a matter of trying it out for oneself, doing the practice
1: and seeing,
0: seeing how it works.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to emphasize that again, it's not complicated. As you say, it's simple that doesn't necessarily mean easy. It, it usually is not easy. But it's not difficult because it's hard to comprehend. It's difficult because we're so unfamiliar with the state of not thinking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we've gotten so accustomed to thinking, so addicted it's,
0: it's to It's been running we... on automatic pilot for almost as long as we've been alive.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: And it's so automatic that we don't even realize that, we're doing it or that it's happening we we aren't aware of it we don't question it and we just assume that it's real
1: yeah and so really the, the practice of meditation is just beginning to notice that thinking is one way to use your mind it gives a certain interpretation to your world and sometimes it's helpful sometimes it's very helpful but it's not representing it's not giving you a direct experience it's giving you a filtered experience and if we don't realize that then we go around thinking that our thoughts are telling us the truth and they're real meditation is really about just noticing that they're just thoughts they're just ideas they're not direct experience and and as I said a moment ago just learning how to tell the difference between a direct present moment experience and a thought about that experience. If you can start to see that there's a difference, everything will open up. It creates a crack in that veneer that we just don't see through because it's everything we've always known. And it's really important to get a crack in there because then you start to see how limiting it is. And in the case of what we're talking about, how we can be very, dysfunctional and self-destructive to the point where we as human beings could conceivably and it appears that we are destroy this planet in terms of its capacity to sustain our lives our human lives which is just unthinkable inconceivable that we could do that and the reason we could do it i think is that we're we're blindly following we're mesmerized by our thoughts We're seduced by them. We're in in a trance of our thinking mind, and we can't see outside of it. And so the, the remedy that I'm presenting is we can learn to see outside of that. We can learn to see that there's a much bigger experience, and in that experience, we don't have to distinguish between right and wrong. We can feel connected to all of it, and in doing that, we feel bigger, happier, healthier, way more secure, and we immediately want to take care of the planet instead of just using it for our own benefit. And that's the big difference. So we can legislate, you know, restrict ourselves from trying to use the planet for our own benefit. We can punish other people for trying to use the planet for their own benefit. But if we don't change the the pattern in our mind, if we don't change the programming of our mind that, that makes us use everything for our own benefit, if we don't question that and alter that, we'll just end up destroying the planet no matter what. And if we move to Mars, if somehow miraculously we're able to create a life platform for ourselves on another planet, we'll just destroy that planet. So we have to get to the bottom of, of why our mind works the way it does and see that it's just a, it's just a mistake, it's just a glitch, it's just an unfortunate way that we've come to use our mind that's becoming so self-destructive And it's not the only way to use our mind.
0: Mm -hmm. So how can people find your writings and access the tools
1: you have available? Yeah, thank you for asking that. So um, I live here in Vermont, and I manage and facilitate at a small retreat facility up in Standard in the Northeast Kingdom and during normal times we have group retreats as well as solo individual retreats and and we offer private couples retreats right now we're not able to do the group retreats as you can imagine and it's unclear when we will be able to resume those but in normal times we do for example concentrated intensive meditation, silent meditation retreat. So that's one way to reach into the mind in the way that you and I have been talking about and begin to see some of the things that you and I have been talking about for oneself is to go on a longer intensive meditation retreat. Right now that may not be possible, but when the COVID virus pandemic is over, hopefully those retreats, including mine here in, in Vermont, will resume. So I offer those retreats in normal times. And right now, uh, the best way to learn more about what it is I'm offering and teaching would be to find my books, which are all on Amazon.com. There's the original large book called Beyond Perception, as you mentioned, which is my particular journey into meditation and some guidance in terms of how to use a practice like meditation. Um, I've also then, as you mentioned, written these two booklets this summer, published them, Human Nature and the tyranny of the ego, that same subject, they come at it from different directions. And hopefully, those books will inspire and, and open doors the way this, hopefully, this conversation is doing. And that's the kind of support I can offer now. We also, until mid November, are still open for solo retreats up here in Vermont in the Northeast Kingdom at, in Standard at Sky Meadow Retreat. You can get information about that at our website, com. And you can learn about my personal teaching and approach and different offerings, such as private couples retreats, at my own website called practicalpresence.org. And my name is Miles Schertz, S-H-E-R-T-S, and uh, if you put any one of those things into, into Google, you'll get more information.
0: Well, Miles Schertz, once again, it's been a lot of fun talking with you.
1: I agree. Thank you, Tonya. These conversations really light me up and I hope that um, they're lighting some people up out there as well.
0: Me too. So, until next time, be well.
1: Same to you, Tonio, and same to everyone listening. Be well.
0: Look now It's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show, or would like to hear it again, or would like to share it with somebody, you can find this show and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. That's soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.